Long ago in a distant land. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Saturday Morning Tuesdays, the adult podcast about children's cartoons. I'm Austin. I'm Rory. I'm Andy. And we've got another special treat for you today. Uh, mm. Listen, um, we don't do this terribly often, but uh, very recently we had Jeff Klein that we interviewed on the show, who worked on Jackie Chan Adventures before we've had uh, Michael Uslin from uh, the Batman From all movies, Batman. From all Batman. <laughs> and um, more famously, Dinosaurs. Uh, yes, and more famously, <laughs> yes. Dinosaurs. And uh, today we've got another cruel interview that is coming to you from a man named Kevin Altieri. And Kevin is an animation director and board artist who has worked on get ready for this um (laughs) not only a director on the majority of the batman the animated series episodes but also um ring raiders kid video (laughs) jackie chan adventures maxi's world um i can go on and i probably (laughs) shouldn't alf alf tales Yes. If you ended on Maxie's world, he might get mad. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's look, true. look, um, we're gonna we're gonna cover a lot of that stuff in our discussion <laughs> today. But it's kind of amazing that we found somebody. We love, you know, kind of getting to the bottom of like what happened with these shows. Like we really enjoy the research and we really enjoy finding what we can and speculating. But we've got somebody who is been in it and created it and sometimes it's nice to hear from the horse's mouth even if it's fun to speculate and you know art should be interpreted by you know whoever's watching it like like all we have is watching the show and and that's the experience at at times it is nice to hear why there are so many planes in alf or Uh well and especially (laughs) animation which is kind of art by well not kind of is incredibly art by commission so the experience of making it is perhaps more notable than just somebody Mm -hmm. sitting in their office writing a book right right this isn't just like a how do you get your ideas stephen king (laughs) it's like (laughs) you know this is like there's always going to be some really interesting stories studio politics um you know different teams eight to ten different teams and studios all sort of like shouting at each other to try to make something happen on a weekly basis. And yeah, uh, so we've got a really interesting discussion for you today. So I really hope you enjoy it. I know... (laughs) We, we, we slightly prepped you a little bit, but I, I, I assume you're aware that our show, our podcast look looks a lot at, at older cartoons. We, we watch oh. a lot of like sort of maybe lesser known 80s and 90s cartoons. And That's yeah, <laughs> I take that back. Apparently, um, the stuff that, you know, we were uh, struggling and racing through at Deke all mm-hmm. through the 80s. But if you look back on it, Deke really did rule Saturday morning. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. really did, and and the, they it was like the beginning of that uh, afternoon block of cartoons, and Deke was on top of that, right? And I was there from the beginning, and <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> it was crazy. Eighties was a good time for me. So I've got a question. We were before you came on, we were debating whether it was going to be worth bringing up uh, the Orange Man, but since you broached it for us. Um, I was kind of curious, we see you worked on a show called Space Force or Starcom. Starcom. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I I don't know. For me, I thought it was, uh, I guess maybe that would be funny when the president stole the name of your cartoon for his. (laughs) The president did not steal that name. That's interesting. It's like, are you guys going to. Are we in the podcast now? Oh, yeah. I mean, sure. Yeah. Good, good. Oh, oh, we're in the thing now. No, that's something. I, you see, when Starcom came along, um, that was like one of the shows. I think I was still on Real Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. You see, back then at Deke, I was once I was a director, I was on Alf, Alf Tales, Kissy Fur. Oh, and mm-hmm. 
second season of Ghostbusters at the same time. And then along comes Starcom, which was a Coleco show. Um, and if you remember Coleco, and they had, they actually supplied us with the toys, the prototype toys. Hmm. You know, you could tell they were prototypes because they're sculpted. And they had these wonderful clockwork mechanisms in them. They weren't powered by uh, batteries. They were powered oh, wow. by clockwork mechanisms and magnets. And they were actually great toys. They were they were great little vehicles. So I was like, really, I said, I want on this show. All right. And Voyager had, was just sending back those first pictures. Voyager had just entered the Jovian system. Mm-hmm. So we're getting real looks at what Jupiter really looks like for the <laughs> first time. Yeah. And I mean... My birthday, my exact day I was born, was the birth of NASA. Oh, cool. That's cool. On my birthday in 1958. So I followed space travel, and I'm just, like, jazzed by it. So when that showed up, I just really wanted to be on it. Me and Dan Reba, I think Marek Bookwall, just uh, the core team of people, and everyone was, like, doing their best job. And that show that we were working on, was called the U.S. Space Force. Mm-hmm. It had to be, that was their whole line. <laughs> Everything was the U.S. Space Force. And it was meant to be the Coast Guard. It's kind of like the Coast Guard. <laughs> the Coast Guard for space. space. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And it's like, and it was the premises and uh, Bryn Stevens, who did a fantastic job as a writer um, and as the story editor, uh, she and Lydia, um, she they actually were very conscious of science and the way science was working, and they were um, and the the whole concept was that there will be the United States Space Force once we go out and colonize Mars. Mm-hmm. You know, there are moon bases. There is you know, and where the colonization happens, criminal activity happens. And like sure. this is the whole concept was where we have gone out and the the furthest reaches are um, Saturn, you know, where once you get to Enceladus and moons like that, you know, and this was all in the scripts. And it was, you know, and I was really jazzed about it. That's cool. It still had it still had a Saturday morning, you know, a kid friendly attitude towards it, but it was real science. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened was after we're already in production and we're banging along you know mm-hmm. um because these shows had to be done down and dirty and fast and despite that some of the animation is actually really exceptional uh but we're doing that show and then comes the word you can't use u.s space force why it is copywritten by the united states government <laughs> really <laughs> they planned a united states space force probably when nasa was born wow and it wasn't publicized uh-huh. because it's it was kind of a military secret. And we couldn't even talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the so when people are like uh, coming down on Trump about inventing the U.S. Space Force, it's not true. Fair enough. It's, it's not true it's at been all. There. It's already and been there. If you look at the logo, people are making fun of Trump again. But no, no, that logo looks like a Star Trek emblem. Yeah. Because the people who formed the U.S. Space Force are Star Trek fans. Totally. Well, I guess we'll give the host of uh, The Apprentice a pass on this one. (laughs) (laughs) U.S. Space Force was born years ago, and I I was there, and I was told that we're changing the name to Starcom. Interesting. That's fascinating. And it was always, it was called Starcom. Star Command was the next title after U.S. Space Force was Star Command. The U.S. Space Force. Ah, uh, sure. Right. Right. Had to drop that too. Right. <laughs> See, I love this because uh, we're, we're maybe using your interview as sort of a backwards way of finding new things for us to watch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's got to go on the list. Yeah, I got to see where I can find some Starcom. <laughs> yeah. It's online um, and you can get it on DVD and stuff. Awesome. And the weird thing is, um, I, as a director, in the United States, um, you don't get a television director. You don't get royalties. You're not mm-hmm. part of that royalty stream. However, the Directors Guild 
does get royalties from overseas. Huh. And Starcom, I would get royalties. I think the last time I got royalties was like maybe a year ago. <laughs> wow. It's never left the air. Starcom never left. It's always playing somewhere. Wow. Where does it syndicate? Do you know? Yeah. No, it's like, it's weird. It's like, you know, 15 years after I was done with the show and I'd been working on Batman, um, I turned on the TV and it's like, what the heck? There's Starcom. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned the, uh, the royalties thing because we've always been so surprised whenever we go to watch a cartoon, we'll then find out it's been like syndicated and wildly popular in Estonia yeah. or some, you know, just somewhere yeah. we'd never thought about. And mm -hmm. uh, maybe that sheds a little light on the how and why that happens. <laughs> well, that's also, um, that's also Andy, um, Andy Hayward and uh, Jean Chalapon. Sure. Oh, yeah. And, and yep. Haim Saban, too. Was uh -huh. in, yeah. You know, Haim Saban yeah. with the music. Um, oh, and yeah. Those guys, you know, they were they were deal makers. Yeah. And um, part of the reason why I got involved with Deke, because I was doing, um, I mean, I always loved Saturday morning animation. I always loved Saturday morning cartoons. I'm a giant Johnny Quest fan, <laughs> you know, from when I was a kid. Understood. Scooby-Doo, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, I love Saturday, you know, Saturday morning cartoons were like, I actually during the eighties while I was making Saturday morning cartoons, my ritual never changed except I would go out the eighties in Hollywood and Deke, I was, you know, I was living in Hollywood. I was living in like a uh, studio city. So Hollywood was like, just to jump over the hill. Mm -hmm. So Friday nights was like, I changed my hair to my flock of seagulls. <laughs> don't have it anymore but you know i used to have like actually it's in your like heart now cat. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i had a stray cats cut you know and suddenly i'd moose it up and i'd have the stray cats cut and me and Dwayne capizzi we'd go out and race oh. hell in hollywood Dwayne capizzi nice. uh yeah we um we've had two other interviews on our show um yeah. one was michael uslin and mm -hmm. the other was uh jeff klein right and uh so we uh jeff talked about Dwayne a lot um yeah. working oh. on jackie chan yeah, no, Dwayne was, uh, Dwayne and I, I met Dwayne when I first came to California, long before I was actually working in either live action, which I ended up doing in uh, the, all the cheapo science fiction movies of the 80s. <laughs> Fun. And um, I, Dwayne, I think Dwayne was, I was, I think, 19, I think Dwayne was 17. He, he's a few years younger than me, but Dwayne was just in college, just his first year of college. And uh, we became fast friends. We met at a comic shop in Studio City. And um, Dwayne was like my good friend. And I was working at Deke for a couple of years. And then about the time when ALF started, we were having trouble with some of the scripts. I mean, but a lot of the scripts coming out were just banged out and they were just crap. Uh-huh. Uh, that's what <laughs> that's something Yuzlin talked to us about was just, yeah. you know, if you've got and, these giant orders and no time to finish oh. them. No, yeah. it's like we were doing a show a week, but wow. Dwayne, oh. who is like, you know, he's my best friend and I'm working on it, you know, an animation. And then finally, um, I actually, I got him a job. I think he was working a little bit at Harmony Gold with Carl Masek, which I kind sure. of set up. And then he was, um, and then we needed scripts. And I pointed out to Richard Rainis, uh, my friend Dwayne, he's a, he just graduated from uh, UCLA, aced it. You know, he was like an English <laughs> major and aced it. And I've I read Dwayne's from the stuff he was writing in high school. And he was making these films. Like one of his best films was Nosferatu Mifune. Super eight genius. Anyway, so Dwayne, so, you know, and Dwayne and I, and it's like, and Dwayne, uh, Dwayne actually taught me how to dance and oh, nice. we go to places like the fetish club and stuff and just like, you know, be the, be those annoying uh, punk rock guys just dancing our asses off. <laughs> Beautiful. And, uh, you know, <laughs> anyway, but so Dwayne uh, came in and uh, brought in his uh, uh, premise that he had, which he had written Bozo Roy, which was about Bozo as going through like kind of a Jodorowsky film. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> and okay. Doing, he had a film treatment and I brought that in. I gave it to Richard. And Richard at first said, we can't just hire friends, you know, <laughs> professionals. And I said, read the script. And, and <laughs> Wait a minute, isn't it. this the entertainment industry? Yeah. <laughs> isn't that what we do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, so Dwayne, like, before you know it, Dwayne not only is hired, but he's the head writer of ALF. Nice. You know, immediately, bang, you know. And so... Was that before the, the show had come out or, or after... Like this before, was before the pilot. The show. This well, was I mean, when, before the like, had the pilot already been written and everything, or the was the pilot it? had been written? But okay, um, at the one thing that uh, like me and uh, Dan Reba would do with uh, scripts and Brad Raider too, is that we had free reign to change what doesn't work because at Deke, like one of the things when I first walked in the door, one of the things that they the deal that they made for me my first year there was like. Hey, look, I got a thousand dollars an act. If you can do an act in a week, you're on hmm. and you get a thousand bucks every week. Wow. And so, but you had to do an entire act by yourself. Sure. Because, and when that, sh- in the, at, at Deke, Saturday morning is coming up, you would, <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous, but we actually had kind of a system, especially on Ghostbusters, where there was a lot of shows. You had a system starting with Kid Video, um, where you would get like backgrounds and uh, character design and storyboards were all done consecutive weeks following each other, so that boards done, designs done, you know, backgrounds done, ship it. Wow! Our like, episodes wow. come. Our episodes coming out. As soon as they're finished, like Saturday Night oh, Live yeah. for the morning. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, on ALF. I remember on ALF. If you if you noticed, um, if you watched ALF. We only saw uh, the we, pilot. Yeah, we watched the first episode of ALF. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, it's like the animation sometimes is like, that yeah. was an exceptional animation job. Well, we noticed there's a whole sequence in in the pilot. The Phantom pilot is these, yeah. the, you know, and <laughs> there's a moment where all of these like really cool designed airplanes are flying through. And it's like yeah. we were commenting that it seemed like the animators would rather be doing Nausicaa. Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, but that was that it was like kind of uncredited. But that was actually um, I think the studio was Kurumi, but they were a TMS satellite studio. Oh, OK, yeah. So Deke. um in Tokyo, where I ended up going a bunch of times, um, Deacon Tokyo was a uh, a lot of the people were like friends with Miyazaki, had worked with him um, all through Castle Cagliostro. Mm-hmm. And then when this was about the time, this was right before when Ghibli was formed. So Nausicaa was still a TMS production. Oh, you know? yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and a lot of the guys that worked on the Deke cartoons were just probably in between assignments or whatever and just <laughs> decided to do Elf on a weekend. Yeah, no, they, it was like they were assigned. It was like the uh, a lot of that work that would, would be come into the offices at Deke Tokyo would go out to satellite studios like Shaft or like ACOM, which is like lower end. Mm-hmm. But it would also go to Kurumi, which was a TMS satellite. That is super cool. Yeah. And so, so you'll get like some of the shows you're like, yeah, that's Saturday morning, but actually like Phantom Pilot actually got a good job, a very nice job. I was actually really pleased with how that one came out. Yeah. Was, yeah. And, and we were able to change dialogue and I was able to go to, um, not that I really wanted to, <laughs> because there's so much work to be done. It, it was amazing. Like I, many times oh, you'd be up till four in the morning because sure. you got a deadline. And and like and I would go to the recordings. A lot oh, of it sure. was done. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, especially on Alf, it's like like actors like Paulina Gillis that did Rhonda. Mm-hmm. You know, you have really great talent that was in Canada, but you have Paul Fusco who owned Alf. Yeah. So he had to be recorded in yeah. Los Angeles. You know, right. and he had to be on the show. He's the voice right. of Alf and Rick and. Well, and there were those live action sequences there too, and yeah, and you had to have those. Yeah, but so uh, I would actually have to go to the recordings, and a lot of the dialogue would get changed as we're going to it. I think Michael Hack was the voice director, 
and we'd end up driving up to these remote places up in the Hollywood, not Hollywood Hills, but in the Malibu Hills. <laughs> and, I, and then I have to get go there, spend three or four hours at the recording, and then get back, and I still got a show to finish, you know? Oof. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> that's not really even your job, like, to be at the, yeah. <laughs> I was a young man. <laughs> Oof. I yeah. was younger at that time. Uh-huh. One of the shows we were most fascinated with uh, was Ring Raiders. Oh, good God. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's, let's explore that. <laughs> we, we watched the healthy portion of Ring Raiders. I'll, I'll tell yeah, you that I think right all ahead. Of it. I think everything that's available, we watched. Good Lord. Ring Raiders was, I think that was the last show I did for Deke. And after that, I was working uh, in development at Disney Feature. Oh, cool. Lion King. Wow. No. So um but yeah, Ring Raiders was something that I took on because I really wanted to do air combat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got to do a lot of that in um it's a whole at that time it was a whole genre of Japanese animation. Yeah. You know, there was like Area 88 and shows like that that were just like air combat and Oniamas. I don't know if you Royal Space Force. Yeah, I, Andy would know that. He's that the... that rings a bell. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm more of the, I'm more of the anime guy here, but uh... the ambassador to Japan for the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's like that all that stuff. So part of the reason why I did Ring Raiders was just because here's this toy. It was it was a kind of a lame toy. It was like, yeah, you, like you got an airplane and you're running around with your airplane on your finger. On it's your like, ring, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> anyway, but I look at it and it's got, you know, it's got accurate combat aircraft. And I got to, do, mainly I did it because I got to draw Wildcats versus Zeros in yeah. dogfights. Yeah. 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 yeah, and then I took my name off the credits and have <laughs> named, changed my name to Turk Savage because my, <laughs> my dad's nickname was Turk. Nice. Oh my god! So, so I used that as just because the animation was I was so disappointed because I was hoping <laughs> for a Kurumi level animation, and instead it went to some lame place. You know, just Yahoo. Yeah, they're all struggling. They're struggling Man. with the air combat aspect of it. Yeah. Um, it, and, yeah, we, I got to draw Wildcats, and I got to draw Zeros, and I got to draw ME262s and MiG-21s and MiG-17s. And it's like, I, I love, I just love being able to draw like aircraft. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you and I, Miyazaki. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I, I feel like. I mean, it, you know, don't even, don't even. <laughs> <get this guy. laughs> it's like, and that's part, and that's part of the reason why, um. It's like in Dan Reba was and and Brad Raider, we were like Miyazaki acolytes at that time. Yeah. And uh if you notice in Alf and Alf Tales, the aircraft and all that stuff, ninety percent of it of uh, the reason why there's so much of it is because we wanted to do it. We wanted yeah. to do that. Just I, we could planes. literally tell. Like <laughs> literally we could tell. <laughs> I, think, I think Dan, um and Al Ziegler, I think, I'm not sure if Al did that, but the big dog fight that happens at the end, I think that's Dan Reba. Hmm. Yeah. And it was the only time that we got a BS&P thing. Oh, really? Because it was the first show that I think Kurumi did for us. I think it was Kurumi. I'm not sure. But it was like, what it was like that TMS level of animation. And there's a scene that Dan drew where... The planes, you know, where Alpha, the Phantom pilot, like drops, gets out of the way, and ah, and you see the planes come, and then there's like a big explosion that fills camera, and in between the flashes, they put American flag with the Statue of Liberty, and it says America, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it was there for one frame, <laughs> and then they S and P. When I was on the Moviola, and we're editing it, you know. And literally, this is how how tight things were. I'd be editing on Thursday after the work print comes in on Monday. Mm -hmm. On Thursday, sometimes the print comes in on Wednesday. You edit it to time on Thursday on a moviola with the editors. Then music gets added to it on Friday. It's on the air oh on Saturday. God. Wow, that's terrifying. That yeah. is incredible. 
Sometimes you missed some, there were some air dates that were missed, but there was many times if when you were a kid and you're watching ALF, ALF Tales, any of those shows, Ghostbusters, it'll go on the air without retakes. Wow. So you'll see some of these mistakes, lame animation, goggle eyes and stuff because it takes time. So for the second broadcast, the retakes would get cut in. Oh, interesting. <laughs> but and- no, NBC... <laughs> CBS, NBC, ABC. It's like, oh, no, it's going on the air. Well, then it's sort of like a Mandela effect for the kids who saw it. It's like, no, no, no. (laughs) It was always fixed. Alf Tales, right? (laughs) Remember Alf Tales, okay? You notice the opening to Alf Tales, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I came up with the opening. It's like, you know, I I actually made up a lot of the openings uh, at that time. Like Mask Force and... Oh, Mask? yeah, I would storyboard those in an afternoon. That's one of our favorite theme songs ever written is for Mask. Yes. <laughs> Saban. Saban. Yeah, yeah. so good. Incredible. Yeah. Ring Raiders is another one. You yeah. know? Ring so is a total banger. Yeah. It's so yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> but if you look at the opening for Alf Tales, mm-hmm. um, it goes on and it ends with, you know, it goes through romance, danger, and you have danger. And you have uh, dressed, you have, because me and Dan were shadow fans. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he's wearing the shadow outfit and a bomb drops into his hands and he, and he like blows up. And then you see Alf all disheveled and he falls down. <laughs> BS and P calls up and says, you can't have Alf get blown up at the beginning <laughs> of the show. <laughs> okay. What, what do, you, do, do? What you mean I can't blow up Alf? Yeah, so <laughs> so I go and do an alternate where it's like I had to storyboard a new one and it had to go and get approved by BSNP and by Deke and everyone. And the the second one was where Alf has the bomb, juggles with it and throws it, and you see an explosion and, and instruments like come flying past. Mm. So he throws it into the orchestra yeah. and blows uh-huh. them up. Mm-hmm. And they were okay with that one. Oh, well, musicians aren't people. Uh. <laughs> and they ended up keeping both of those. Oh. So sometimes you'd be watching the show and Alf would blow up. And then other times he'd throw it into the orchestra and the orchestra would blow up. <laughs> that's incredible. Um, speaking of, so you're talking about um, BSP and that's what standards and practices, right? Yes. That's, uh, yeah. Um, standards and practices. Uh, now you also did a Rambo show. Oh, good God! Yeah, um, <laughs> this is this is this is something I'm fascinated in because there, this is not the only cartoon that was made in the '80s and '90s based on an incredibly R-rated adult property. How does that? Yeah. How does that happen? Or at least, like, what are the conversations no, no, you have when you're making it? It, it was. Um, I mean, it's just it's product placement. It's like there were if there was a Rambo doll in a Rambo line of toys. Uh, they're going to make a cartoon of it. Yeah, yeah. And well, they, and if you read and if you look at it, it's like I remember I was storyboarded one where they had like this giant uh, C one thirty gunship, you know, that the bad guys have, and it's like shooting up this village and all that. No one gets hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody gets hurt. And if anything goes, it's like you know, and it's got Gatling guns and cannons and things going off and. But it's like, yeah, it's, that was done for Ruby Spears. And I really didn't have a whole lot to do with the Rambo cartoon. Mm. I don't know why I get so much credit for the Rambo cartoon. Interesting. Because I only did it. I was just doing boards on a few shows. Gotcha. Well, you know, IMDb, who's to say what's true? Oh, no. They, they, <laughs> they want that they uh, IMDb is desperate for people to uh, yeah. not recognize that I did Batman, you know, so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's bizarre so how like, undercredited you are about Batman on there. Yeah, no, they it's like there's some busybody over there that, you know, and I'll go on I mean I I go on IMDb, you know, and I have my own page that I change. And there's there's some busybody goes in there and says, Oh no, here's Maxie's world. Which we which we also watch. Storyboard. It's one storyboard. <laughs> You know, it's a favor for a friend. And, I, and that was done in like, well, three hours, by the way. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Boy, Maxie's was the a whole show. Was kind of a rough one to get through. 
<laughs> why would you watch that? I don't know. Because <laughs> well, we watched uh, we why? watched Beverly Hills Teens. Oh, that, I'm um, sorry. Yeah, yeah it's we a, are too. It's, it's a okay. Insane show, and they did a crossover with Maxie's World, so we had to, uh, you know, we had to see it through. <laughs> yeah, no, those are both the uh, they're both toy properties that uh, Deke was invested in. You know, yeah. But I mean, yeah, Maxie's World was just something I did for Marek because Marek was directing it, and I just he said, "You gotta help me out," and it's like, okay, <laughs> so I storyboarded uh, one show, and, but it was done in like three hours. Wow, that's amazing! I mean, it's amazing how fast you had to work back then. Yeah, yeah, because so I'm, I guess I'm curious about the boarding and writing process. So. I know a lot of shows now are either script based or board based, but what were, was it mostly scripting before? Would you get a script oh, and then storyboard it? Always, always scripting. There's okay. always a script. Um, but sometimes the scripts were so bad um, that you just had to change them. Right. <laughs> like yeah. on real Ghostbusters, for instance, um, right from the get go, um, there's like, they weren't. You had Chuck and Len, who I worked with before. They were kind of a standard writing pair that were at Deke. And they worked on kid video and stuff. And they understood the parameters. Like, they'd write a script, it'd get approved. Boom, you have to board it. And we just go crazy on it. And just <laughs> try and make something that can be animated in the time that we have. And Chuck and Len were, were on board with it. They, they were like, change, it the, change the hell of it. I don't care. You know, and and then they were on Ghostbusters too. But Joe Straczynski, J. Michael Straczynski. Oh yeah, he was like the story editor, and um, he actually would turn in like these really good scripts. I thought they were good, but some of them were like sixty nine pages. <laughs> That's yeah, because so he's writing like, like sequences down and stuff. And it's like, you, or is it like just words? There's like one was uh, his the pilot, which I did the board. I can't remember the Japanese director's name that did the second act. They did the entire first act. But that was Knock Knock. Really good script. But it was like painfully long. And we it's like and the rule is like one minute, you know, yeah. you know, one minute equals one script page. That's kind of a rule of, you know, I knew that from working in film and you work on cartoons. It's even worse. You know, because there's so much more that you have to jam in. It's like because writers will have a tendency to throw in a sentence like where the fight happens here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, yeah. we're writers. Um, <laughs> yeah, we. I get it. No. Yeah. So and Straczynski was like the worst at that. So no matter how good the characters were or how much fun you think it is, it's like you're struggling to find like what can be cut out and still have the story make sense. It's and, actually something we talk about on the show a lot is the what we call what we kind of call uh, nonsense when it's just like you said, a, a, some, one would guess the writer has just written, you know, the fight happens here. And then for some amount of minutes is just uh, no progression. It's just yeah, it's just yeah. fights happening kind of without uh, much. Yeah, no much progression. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but like by the time I was working at um, well, that was kind of the difference between working you know, Deke, you know, early on. And then by the time I was working on uh, Batman, um, the writers, guys like Paul Dini, mm -hmm. yeah. they have a real understanding of uh, how that works. Oh, totally. So yeah. They don't dictate or insist upon how the fight happens, but they will create the beats that are in the script so that the script is not deceivingly short, you know. What I sure. Mean? Yeah. Yeah. So the page will—it's like it'll describe kind of the parameters of the fight and take up that much room on the page. Yeah. So you're hitting these beats as you're doing action. You know, you may yeah. be inventing the action, but it's provided. The time is provided for. You know, that's 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 what a good writer does. Yeah. So I actually wanted to bring up. Around that transition, you're talking about going from Deke to Batman. Um, something was definitely in the air around the early 90s, where I get the sense that this was really a time when animation 
became like good. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and and by that I mean like became something that people were taking seriously all of a sudden. Like, um, I think, I think basically was that the generations had, that grew up on Saturday morning cartoons were now doing Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah, that's what we yeah. notice a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you go from I was looking at the. Um, the list of all the uh, Emmy winners for best animated program and all through the eighties, it's like Garfield TV specials and yeah. then it becomes the Simpsons and then it's Batman, the animated series. And like, um, what was it like kind of seeing, seeing a shift happen around the late eighties well, and like serialized it, storytelling? It, suddenly? Wasn't, it wasn't really a shift. It was something that we created. Yeah. If you look at like the early, the early scripts on Batman, with the exception of Man Bat on Mother Wings, like on Mother Wings was like, that was that script, you know, that hooked me. I was like the first guy there. Um, but I made the phone call. I think Brad Rader, who was a deke, um, he, um, I think he was already talking to Bruce, Bruce Tim, about coming on to Batman. Yeah. And I think they were talking to about, you know, they were looking for people who could do action adventure. Um, and I think my name came up because Bruce was another Deke guy. Mm. He was a Deke too on uh, Beanie and Cecil and oh, on sure, cops sure. and on cops. Oh Bruce. yeah. Um, anyway. So Bruce, you know, hired me as the director, you know, I was the first director there and my immediate reaction was you know i mean because i talked to bruce the first scripts coming in other than man bat were kind of that mamby pamby saturday morning really super painfully kid friendly yeah you know and i knew that's not what gene mccurdy wanted and i knew that you know bruce was not gonna do that you know and and well and useland was all about serious batman yeah you know, yeah. that was like no, a whole yeah. thing. And, and, yeah. And it's, this was, you know, they, they wanted it more serious. So I knew that wasn't going to be how it was going, going to be. Um, and we had kind of carte blanche to be able to change the scripts to make them more serious. Those first ones. Um, but when it came time to hire a crew, the first day I'm there, I pick up the phone and I call up Dan, who was over at TMS. And I said, Dan, we're doing a good Batman. He's like, I'm, a, I'm there. You know, <laughs> Dan Reba came over. And, you could have uh, called it good Batman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, because Dan, I had, didn't know, but Dan had already seen the, um, the promo that they did. You know, that, that three-minute promo that they did of uh, i don't think i'm familiar is it like an extended of the the bank the bank and the yeah opening opening sequence yeah yeah bank opening is based on still gives me goosebumps every time (laughs) based on that promo they did yeah Yeah. bruce and uh, eric so dan already had a copy you know because everything gets bootlegged and he's like i'm i'm there i call up john calmet I called him up. He came on board as a painter. He was over at Deke. You know, Brad, of course, was already on board. He's on my crew. Mike Gogan showed up. He was a character designer at Deke on ALF and ALF Tales. Um, And Mark Wallace, who was a, I think he was a prop designer, but he came on and was doing boards for me on Batman. You know, so it was like basically the Deke guys, we all, we, we still stuck together, you know. Right. And, and it's just so, like, oh, are we doing good cartoons? Great. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's Batman. good. And the thing is, all of us at Deke, we, and of course, I was a bit older at this point. I'm in my, you know, early 30s. I was think, I think I was 34. Yeah, I was 34. So I was not, um, I was not what I would call a young guy. But the thing about that was the Deke training was, you know, a show a week. Mm-hmm. You had to do a whole goddamn show in one week. You know, that's how that was the Deke schedule. Right. And we get over there and it's, a, and it's like they're telling us, well, you know, we only got four weeks to do an episode. <laughs> and we're like, don't tell them. Like, uh, we, were, we were able to actually, you know, explore things and come up with stuff and experiment with Hitchcock. And uh, yeah. we were able to indulge the stuff, you know, the things that we were always trying to do at Deke, but that we got to actually do on Batman. 
And the scripts on Batman, especially after, um, well, speaking of Saturday morning, you know, Alan Burnett, he was another Saturday morning guy, you know, mm-hmm. and he came over and I think the last thing he did, which it was a good show was DuckTales. Yeah. Mm. Um, and Gene McCurdy hired him and I'm going like, Oh, give me a break. Hanna-Barbera guy. What, are, what has he done? <laughs> DuckTales. Oh, great. DuckTales. That's a great recommendation for Batman. <laughs> and the first script comes in that he wrote with Randy Rogel. And it's the Two-Face origin story. Mm-hmm. Two-Face part one and two. And I'm like, yeah, this is the best script I've ever read. I've, it was the best script I'd ever, I'd ever read. Batman. Ooh. And literally that show. Dark I, not, yeah. <laughs> I do not remember um on Two-Face Part One. I really don't remember any part of the script that didn't make it onto the animation. Like hmm, that's cool. all from the script. We may have done our thing to it. We may have done our dramatic moments and stuff, but beat by beat. That's Alan and Randy Rogels. That might be a good one to watch for the show. Yeah. 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 TMS animation. It's like, I couldn't ask for more. Right. They did a great job. They did a great job on that. It's, uh, you know, that's, that's obviously, I mean, that's probably the thing that you're, you know, most well known for is your work on Batman. But is there, is there some sort of, is there an angle or, or something about working on that show that like people don't really ever ask you about? Like, I, I don't know if you get the same sort of questions all the time, but I feel like that you spent such a long time on it. Is there any, are there any like cool stories that you don't normally get to, to relay? <laughs> well, it's like the thing about Batman was uh voice recordings were just a great thing to go and see, mm-hmm. you know, as like, as the director, I'd go there and I'd sit on the couch and I got to watch like all these fantastic actors as an ensemble, uh, you know, Oh, are they all in the room? Yeah. That's wow. how that's how Andrea Romano would do it. Oh yeah, she's the um, best. So it's it's like watching a radio play. And I mean yeah. I'm trained. I, I I dealt with voice actors a lot at Deke. You know, it was more down and dirty at Teak. But um, you know, we had so you have the methods that you developed there, uh, which worked because it's like at Deke, I learned timing. I I would do the slugs for all the shows. That would go out. Mm-hmm. Um, you would go to the voice recordings and and all that. So your methods are all there. And so you show up and you got your script and the actors are acting and you're supposed to be taking notes, you know, oh, he needs this. And, and I would do that. But quite often I'd find myself going, you know, just staring at the actors, you know, <laughs> like, you know. Two Face, you know Richard Mall says something. Sure. Bruce Wayne says um, something. I guess I've got a question in that vein. Um, did I, I guess for all of them, but the one I, I think of most iconically is Mark Hamill's Joker. Uh, did he? Do you audition a voice for something like that, or did they come the up with role, it in the room? The role was originally given to Tim Curry. Okay. Wow. It was just given to him, which was no brainer. It's like mm-hmm. Tim Curry doing the Joker brilliant yeah okay brilliant casting. <laughs> and i actually met tim curry it was like it was the first my first joker episode the last laugh originally called the joker april's fool <laughs> uh-huh. bruce and i changed it i think i think it was bruce who came up with it i'm not sure i can't remember but it was like no last laugh that's a good title yeah <laughs> that was like a script that we kind of played around with a lot to make it work better but anyway, um, so I show up and there's Tim Curry. And I'm like a big Rocky Horror fan. <laughs> and before I could even open my mouth, because I, I had just gone to an REM concert with Dwayne like the <laughs> night before. And I have, the t- the, I have an REM t-shirt on. Uh, and so I walk in and I'm like, what do I say to him? What do I say? You know, it's like, how do, how do you talk to Tim Curry? How do you talk to Tim Curry? And as I get up the courage to actually talk to him, I walk on, I got like my scripts and stuff. And I'm going to say something intelligent to Tim Curry. And he goes, <laughs> ah, someone with taste in music. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, 
melt yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. I can't yeah. talk. I can't do anything. I just turned beet red, you know? It's like, and he said it in like this total Frankenfurter kind of voice. Yeah. I think so, that's just, what, right? That's just his default. Just, <laughs> uh, well, how did he, how did he leave the project? Did he just not click? I think, I think he ended up on a play that um, oh. I think oh. it might've been, he was contracted. I think he had to go back to Broadway. It might've been Annie. It might've been Annie. Um, because I know a lot of the actors. Well, and yeah, I think he went back. It was, it was like a play, you know, that he had to contractually deal with. So he wasn't going to be available for a certain amount of time. So he was gone. And then, uh, Mark Hamill was just one of the hundred people that did a test through um, Andrea. Cool. But he tested with, he worked on his own voice and brought that voice to the audition or the test. Yeah. Cool. And cool. One thing about Mark Hamill that people don't really realize is that um, what a song and dance guy he was. Hmm. And I think you'd have to ask Mark this if you ever get a chance to. But I think um, before, right before Batman, he was doing Amadeus. Oh, cool. Okay. Play. Yeah. And if you think about, I believe that Tom Holtz um, stole the laugh from Mark Hamill's. <laughs> Interesting. That's if really you think funny. About, you, you think about that high pitched giggle uh-huh. that Mozart has, mm-hmm. and then think about Mark Hamill playing Mozart. Yeah. yeah. I could see it. Yeah. Might have been, might have been that. Also, I think Kevin Conroy is a theater guy too, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a family kind of thing. Whereas yeah. Deke, you know, it was basically so down and dirty and so fast. Although <laughs> on Alf Tales, there was the one where the cruelty of the writers to write in Alf Tales, a musical. <laughs> you know there were several musicals and i love doing musicals i love doing musicals i was kind of i was curious about the workflow especially for something like a musical so you get a script and it's i assume it's got the lyrics maybe not all the time uh and then for like composition and singing and and the like you know any dance numbers that are happening that how much community like is that all happening simultaneously are people able to sort oh, of coordinate a deep no, there's there's no such thing as coordination. Okay, that's what I thought. No, no, yeah. It was like it was <laughs> happening, and we had um, it was very weird because I think because uh, part of the reason why we did um, kid video was because it was a Saban project mm-hmm. in a way for him to use the music that's being written for different things. And anytime a song was written, um, Saban would do it for free for us, but huh. he owned the rights. No matter who wrote it, he would maintain the rights to the song, mm. and it would end up in elevators, uh, in okay. Dubai or something uh-huh. like that. Right, and, <laughs> and he would sell it. He would sell, or it'd be on TV commercials, or it would be, you know, in Israel somewhere. You know, yeah. He was he was very, you know, sharp about that kind of stuff. Right. Um. So, do the music that was done for us was done, um, free, and Saban was like there was. Deke here on Ventura Boulevard, there was uh, Wolfgang's restaurant in between, and then there was Saban's studio. Mm, okay. Wow. So we were running back and forth from the studio. So when the music happened, Andrew, whose last name I can't remember at the moment, but Andrew was in charge of the music that was being done for Deke. And he would go and I say, I need swing music. <laughs> because the Robin Hood was a swing thing. Yeah. And yeah. I need jazz chops and we need mysterious Alfred Hitchcock kind of cues. We need this, we need that. And they would actually pull in the mu- musicians and actually do things there. You'd go over and listen to the guys as they're doing it. They record it. And then, so we ended up with a library for each show of music cues yeah. that we could use over and over. Well, what do you, what do you think is like, super different nowadays and kind of what are what are you up to these days uh yeah are you you, you still have a foot in the game i'm assuming you do i'm assuming you're still working yeah i mean the whole covid19 thing is kind of yeah it's been a rough one yeah 
No, it's it's pretty bad, and uh, there's a lot of prejudice against uh, older veterans. That's that's something that's different. Because mm. back then, at the any studio, actually, when I was on Lion King, I worked very closely with a guy, Vance Gary, who should get a lot more credit for how Lion King came out. Mm. Um, he was a development guy, but that guy was on Peter Pan, and he was like, I think he was seventy-two at the time. <laughs> Great guy. And that was an advantage that I had was I, when I worked at Deke, there was like me, I was like 23, 24, 24, 25. I don't know. You know, it was like, I was there, you know, for five or six years um, as a young man, but I had like 50 something year old uh, Japanese directors helping me. Yeah. You know, showing you, no, 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 do this. Or Bruno who was a bit older, you know, and he was a great artist. And then just, uh, and Bernard was another guy who's the head of the studio and he would help. No, no, no. You know, your problem is you're using the point of your pencil, use the flat, you know, <laughs> simple things like that, that, you know, they would hand down, uh, just how to be a better artist or how to do cartoons better. Yeah. Um, and there was always like the older guys like Jesse Santos and I mean, the list goes on. There was like, there was a mixture of young men, women. There was always, I mean, back then, I don't know what the union studios were like, but it was like, it was instantly the crew was all everyone, you know, we're, sure. you know, it's like gay, straight women, guys, you know, um black white if you could draw you had a job mm -hmm. right you know right. um yeah. that's how the 80s were we kind of had mm -hmm. we had the we had those you know the prejudices weren't really there because everybody if someone was showed up and had prejudice and it's like i need this person they <laughs> the can workload draw. didn't uh, didn't allow for any kind of <laughs> any yeah. kind of slowdowns if, you, no, if yeah. you're gonna <laughs> no my crews were just diverse mm -hmm. yeah well, that it seems it. like with the, you know, with 2D animation, sort of the, you know, the decline of 2D animation with with 3D animation and computer technology, it seems like there was a lot of generational knowledge that got lost. Yeah, you know? I mean, but I I mean, it's still there. Like for yeah. right now, though, I, I found out that, you know, again, I need steady work. I mean, the last job uh, that I was director on was over at Crunchyroll. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And I was working for Sophia Alexander, who was someone that I hired at uh, Hasbro and trained. That's kind of the standard thing. Right. And she came up with this story based on her culture, which is Mexican, uh, which is Onyx Equinox. Hmm. Oh, yeah. And, I think I saw uh, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Hold on. And it's, it's, look that up. it's one of the bloodiest things I've ever worked <laughs> on. Cool. And I, I did the pilot, you know, the first episode and um, a bunch of episodes of that. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's pretty, it's 2D and it's uh, pretty ambitious. Cool. You know, That's it awesome. Takes place, it takes place in the ancient world back when uh, Mayan Aztec culture was like the Roman Empire. Yeah. Sure. You know, at the same time, the Roman Empire is going on. There was the same thing going on in South America all the way up. Probably not, not so much in North America, but certainly the empire was down in uh, South America, and there was like road systems and yep, you know, so yeah. it was an advanced, advanced culture, and that's that that's where that show takes place in. Yeah, and it's also I finished writing the screenplay of my own property, which um, I'd like to I'd like to share it with everyone, but it's too easily copied. <laughs> Right. Sure. Uh -huh. Until the deal happens and we're in production, I'm not going to announce it. Sure. But it's yeah. a it's a rated R horror action adventure series. Fun. Cool. All right. I'm starting with a feature film. Cool. And uh me and my partner Bill and Bowden uh finished the screenplay. And it's like that was another thing I did right when the COVID thing was happening. It was like I was just finishing the screenplay. Yeah. And uh so yeah, again, I need money. <laughs> you know, yeah. need to make a living. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but there's a lot of things that are going on. And I think yeah. that it's like it's going, this could actually work into the benefit of like advancing 2D animation again. Oh, awesome. I think so. Because yeah. people are very tired. 
very yeah. tired of the CG thing. Well, and kids, especially kids. It's like this whole thing of the CG look for kids is like the kids like, they love drawings. Mm-hmm. They just love it, you know? Um, and that's part of the charm, you know? And that's yeah. kind of what's missing, but it but it's not gone. No. Um, no. You'll hear from executive people, you know, who, for whatever reason, have decided things, and, you know, and there's mantras that are, you know, said, you know, about how, oh, you know, 2D is dead and all that. And it's like, no, I think one of the things that uh, they tried to get rid of all the 2D equipment at Disney feature. But I think Brad Bird, not Brad Bird, what am I saying? I think one of the last things that Lasseter did was he bought all the equipment and kept mm. it so that they still have it. You know, so there was an attempt to like, well, we're just doing CG from now on. So why bother Mm -hmm. this stuff? You know, and the the thing is, if you want to do CG animation, um, which I've done, you know, I've directed CG projects. Mm -hmm. um, There is no difference in the storyboarding process. You better be able to draw. Yep. You You still have to be able to draw. You know, it isn't modeling and all that. And uh, what I would t- tell my students when I was when I teach, um, teaching animation, teaching storyboards or animation, um, the thing is, you want to be a dime a dozen cog in the machine. Learn, uh, you know, computer animation. Yeah, you know, it's like dime a dozen. It's like everybody can do it. It's like being a, uh, well, I don't know, a drummer in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> like you may be a fantastic drummer, but every band in Los Angeles has a fantastic drummer. And all you got to do is throw a quarter out there and you'll hit a musician. Yeah. <laughs> it's all, it's kind of the same in the animation industry. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to be the person that tells the story, uh, if you want to be the person that, uh, you know, rises to the top, so to speak, you know, you better be able to draw. Yeah. You better, you you got to pay attention to your life drawing. You have to learn perspective. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about the drawing thing is that like the CG misses out on a lot is just love. Yeah. 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 It's like people made fun of me like because I would do the Scooby-Doo's. I like doing the Scooby-Doo direct videos, you know. Sure. And they're like, well... Look, you, you've come down so far from Batman. And I said, well, you know, I might take you seriously, except that maybe I like drawing Shaggy and Scooby. Yeah. Because when well, it's you especially guys, something is it's like, old. hey, Mr. Mr. Uh, condescending. It's like, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like you're not going to you're not as good as Iwo Takamoto was, you know, <laughs> in any, any of those drawings of the like the Scooby gang by Iwo Takamoto, they're just such a pleasure to draw. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're so much fun to make them emote and then put them through their, you know, paces. I think anyone who talks down to those Scooby-directed videos never watched them because they're a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. (laughs) Kids love them, them, you know. Well, and I I see a show like Scooby-Doo as a great way to... I guess flex flex into your sense of humor in a way that you don't you can't always do in a more serious show. Like you get to draw things that are funny looking, right? Yeah. Like yeah. And that's that's so entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> to draw a silly picture is great. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say and I'll say one thing too, and it's like I'm guilty of, uh, but kid video killed Scrappy Doo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really because they were like number one they were like a high rated the h&b cartoons so nbc was it nbc i think it was nbc that was doing uh kid video mm. anyway they put kid video right opposite their biggest contenders you know <laughs> with the purpose of getting the ratings and like sure enough <laughs> and they got them nice there snipe, they go. Snipe Scrappy. I think Kid Video is the worthy winner. Scrappy Doo's a little more contentious than the rest of the game. Yeah. <laughs> they had that MTV audience, right? They were trying to go for that MTV thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been really, really awesome, Kevin. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah. Um, yeah no so insightful. Yeah. Yeah. You what you missed out? Right. <laughs> now, you guys were probably in grade school then, huh? <laughs> I was born in 89, so. Oh, forget it. You weren't even... <laughs> 
<laughs> don't tell the man that. You just a dream in yeah. your father's soul. Yeah. <laughs> no, we have we have such a we have such a love for for this this era of of content. It's just the, how free and bizarre some of it got to be is just really nice, and we like getting to go go back and. And and yeah. certainly to talk to people who are involved, it's it's so much fun. So thank you yeah. very much. Yeah, yeah. No problem. It's like I, the I I do miss the eighties, and it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't just because I was a young man at the time. Of know? course, it's like there yeah. there was just something about Los Angeles in the eighties, especially Hollywood, that uh, I really miss. Yeah, um, you'll never have those times when you can just go running out on Friday night and park your car. On Sunset Boulevard <laughs> and just run into yep. a club, you know. Yeah, but one and this. my dad was one of those musicians you hit with a quarter earlier in the eighties. So <laughs> I fully understand. Mine was too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. Um, yeah, stay well. safe. Stay employed. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know exactly. Yeah, and uh, we'll catch you around. <laughs>